Welcome to Baron Talks, where I have discussions with interesting people in the Penn State Baron community. I am Dr. Ralph Ford, Chancellor of Penn State Baron. My guest today is Dr. Sherry Mason. Sherry is our Sustainability Coordinator at Penn State Baron. So, Sherry, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, and feel free to call me Sam. Well, I will. I know we call you that, well, you know, it, commonly, And uh, but uh, you are Dr. Sherry Mason, but we'll call you Sam for the remainder of the show. But uh, let me let me do a little background, though, on your, uh, your bio. It's very impressive. You hold a bachelor's in chemistry from the University of Texas, Austin, a Ph.D. in physical chemistry from the University of Montana. You came to us from SUNY Fredonia. Uh, you've been at the University of Waterloo, Minnesota, Montana. But I'm going to go a little further. Your work is really well known in microplastics worldwide. This is not an exaggeration. Uh, you won the Heinz Public Policy Award in 2018. That's a big deal. Congratulations. You have been featured in the American Scientist and Time Magazine. And I know that's just part of the list, but it's because the work that you're doing is very impactful. And we're going to talk about a lot today. But the first thing I'd like to know, I'll turn this over to you, is so you, I think you grew up in Texas. Is that correct? That is correct. I grew up, how, yeah. How did you end up in Erie? So tell us a bit of your path to Erie, Pennsylvania and Penn State University. I grew up in Texas, but it's, it's, um, I don't know how many, how much people know about Texas. It's really hot down there, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I, I really wanted to get out of Texas. Um, it was more affordable for me to, to do my undergrad in Texas. I, I looked at going out of state, but couldn't afford it. Um, so, you know, Sadly, had to go to UT Austin, which, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, that's a really good school. <laughs> that was a good choice, yeah. <laughs> um, but when I when I left Austin or, or graduated um, from UT Austin, I um, I wanted to move up north. And um, so I was looking for a, a smaller community, and I was looking to be up north and in the mountains. And really kind of threw a dart at the board in Missoula, Montana, came up onto my radar. <laughs> Um, so I, I kind of on a whim and much to the chagrin of my parents, just kind of pa- packed up and moved to Montana, having never visited or anything. Um, but I knew that it was it was a small town. It was in the mountains and there was a college there. And um, I was just that's what I was looking for and didn't really know what I was going to do. And I, I I actually took a gap year, as it's commonly referred, and um, worked a bunch of uh, not uh, crappy jobs, a bunch of <laughs> I cleaned hotel rooms. I was a waitress oh. and a terribly bad one at that and um and decided that that maybe I should go to grad school. <laughs> um so uh ended up at the University of Montana um to do my PhD and my my first semester in grad school I took a class called Teaching University Chemistry and realized Oh, so with a PhD, I could become a professor. Like, that's how professors come to being. Like, they're not, like, handed to us from God. They they, they come into life um, in this way and, and realize that that's really what I wanted to do and, and was a little bit, um, you know, unsure prior to that. So, yeah, so I got, I decided I wanted to be a professor. And um, during my time in Montana, I loved it there, um, but it's kind of remote. So I decided that I wanted to to move out to the East Coast to be closer to where things are, you know, in closer proximity to each other. Um, got the job at Fredonia, arrived there and realized I had not made it to the East Coast. <laughs> you have not. 
You're on the edge of the Midwest. (laughs) I made it to the Midwest. And, um, but, um, along the shores of the Great Lakes and fell in love with them and, and never wanted to leave, um, this area. So even as I was looking to move, um, out of SUNY Fredonia, um, really wanted to stay in this region. So I just feel so incredibly blessed that, that Penn State Baron had a position, um, and, and I was able to get that. So. Well, let's talk about that position. You are our sustainability coordinator. You teach classes as well, but I'd like to talk about the ambitious goals and ideas that you have in, in sustainability. So talk about what, what is that? What is it you're trying to do? So I think uh, sustainability, let's start with that because that's the question I get the most. What is sustainability? What do we mean by that? Sustainability means being able to meet our current needs without affecting the ability of future generations to meet theirs, right? And so I think this is really important. A component of it is environmentalism and protecting the environment um, because obviously we rely on the environment for everything that we use and need and um, to survive. Um, but there's an economic component to this and there's a people component to this too. Um, and I think that's a, a really important kind of understanding to have. Um, I, I usually use the analogy that it's, it's really going to be hard to get somebody to care about protecting a tree if they can't feed themselves, right? If they can't, um, you know, feed their children or their parents and take care of themselves. So you have to have all of these things working in concert to really have a sustainable society. I really like that definition because it is thinking about future generations. But is it I think it's hard for people to think that way, though. Right. It seems it's out there. Right. We say that a lot, but you've got to get people to have that into their conscious belief system. Well, that's what I like about the so the the 17 sustainable development goals that were um, developed um, largely through the United Nations um, and their their you know organization of, of states um, adopted in 2015. So these 17 goals really kind of put this lofty idea into kind of you know much more tangible form, right? So um, it starts with no poverty. Um, mm-hmm. gender equity, um, you know, uh, economic development, you know, these are all components to it, as well as things like climate change and, and life of, on land and life below water. Those kind of environmental components that I think people automatically assume are part of sustainability. It also incorporates these other aspects that are much more focused on people, right? Living wage, no poverty, no hunger, And things that are focused on the economic component. So, you know, economic growth, um, responsible consumption and production, you know, so understanding that all of these things work together. You know, when you introduced us to them and I saw that it makes so much sense because I I think people do make that leap automatically to, you know, the great side. We ought to save the earth. We need to, you know, minimize our impact. But you make a really great point. If people's someone's basic needs aren't met, they don't care. Because it's it's too important otherwise. And I mean, uh, to, you know, give our, our listeners a, an idea of where we're at. Today's June 2nd. And this is, you know, after we've had these terrible incidents in Minnesota and the like. And this is all part of it. This is all related. And when people can't live in a safe society, they can't even think about it. So that's got to be first. So I'd like to see that in the goals. Yeah. And that's how they start. And, and yeah, racial, racial equity is a big part of that. And so I'm really glad that you brought that up. Well, let's switch to Baron because you've been spending time in, uh, assessing how we're doing, 
Uh, obviously, we hired you because we wanted to get better. But, you know, what are we doing well? What do you see in our future? What do we have to do better at Barron in terms of sustainability, too? How does it translate into the student experience? It's a good question. Yeah, so we've we've been working on this last year on this campus assessment, which is about to be uh, completed. Um, and along the way, developed a, a council of people that will help um, work with me to help us develop a master plan. What are we doing well? I think, um, you know, we are a living laboratory, right? We're an open laboratory concept, and, and you really see that in the, the sustainability assessment. We have lots of opportunities for students um, with regard to, to civic engagement, student groups and activities, research that they can get um, involved in. We have a lot of support for underrepresented groups, um, and so we, we're doing really well in that area. Um, and then our campus grounds, I mean, you can't, you can't escape that, right? We, we are an arboretum, um, and we have, um, wonderful maintenance staff who, who keep, um, our, our grounds so, so beautiful and really do it in, with a, a conscientious mind to the fact that we are right on the Wintergreen Gorge, and, and hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit later. Well, we um, yeah. Um, so those are the things we're doing well. Um, there are, of course, other areas that we need to improve on, and that will be kind of the focus of developing this master plan for us moving forward. It's really important to our students. I think they, they feel this, they understand it, but sometimes I think it's a little, you know, it's a little difficult for them to know what they can do. So how, how are you seeing that connection with them going with, and, and are there student clubs and organizations in particular that have sought you out? Absolutely. Well, we have um, Greener Baron is probably the most well-known of the student groups um, that's um, focused on environmental sustainability. Um, we just started a new student group called LEAFS, which is focused on food security um, and food sustainability. Um, I've also been reached out by, by uh, Reef Watch, which is focused on basically water protections and, and life below water, um, mm-hmm. focusing on that. Um and then a number of student groups that are involved in projects for classes that have reached out to me. So um, one student group that was interested in creating kind of sustainability welcome bags um, so that as students come to campus, arrive onto campus, we give them things like reusable bamboo ware and, you know, a stainless steel straw and a reusable bag so that they're not having to 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 have so much disposability. Um, another another group that was interested in, in putting up bat houses and, and uh, beehives. And so, you know, as my position becomes more prominent, as this idea of sustainability becomes more prominent on campus, you have more and more students reaching out. Um, and that's great. And working with them um, to make these kind of desires um, a, a reality um, is, a, is a big part of what I do. And uh, I think, like you said, we've got this kind of open laboratory environment and they can see the, the changes. You know, one of the large discussions we ended up having was really driven by, you know, an international problem. And that was, you know, the fact that our, our recycling waste, not a lot of people even knew, goes to China, right? Uh, most people, they had no idea of that, by the way. They, they have no idea. They put it in their bins, they sort it, and then it probably didn't know where it was going. And all good faith, right? And then China stopped buying it. This created this tremendous change and uh, opportunity for a for discussion. Uh, you hear in Erie, you know, they're not accepting glass anymore, even in the, the mainstream recycling. So anyways, I wanted to just get your thoughts on that and 
how that's changed and, you know, what are the, what does the public really need to understand about recycling to make it more effective? Now we'll stick with the home recycling right now. That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I asked a really hard one. It's good. Um, I, I think, you know, people, we need to think more about, about our waste. I think that's, that's step one is, you know, that we do put it out at the curb and it disappears overnight, right? I mean, literally overnight it disappears mm-hmm. and we, we, you know, it's somebody else's problem. Um, but understanding the process by which our waste, um, is recycled and, and taken care of, I think is an important aspect. I, I wish everybody, at some point in their life, had to go out to a landfill and see what a landfill looks like, an operating landfill, in order to really have an appreciation for the quantity of trash that we produce as individuals and as a society um, and what it looks like. You'd be shocked at when when you go out to a landfill, you'd be shocked at what you see, you know, perfectly good things. And you're just like, I want to take this home because um, it's perfectly usable. Um and then yeah. in terms of recycling, you know, it's it's that it, you know, the single stream recycling that has become the norm over the last, you know, uh, 15 years, I think, um, has, you know, it was it was one of those best intentions, right? It was supposed to increase recycling rates. But in the, the process, you know, you really have to have that sorting part of it. Um, so our our single stream goes to a, a MRF, a mixed use recycling facility that's supposed to, to sort it out. Um, but machines are not as good as people. And so they're they're not terribly effective. Um, and that's part of the reason why China stopped accepting our our, you know, largely plastic um, because it was so highly contaminated. In fact, they they will accept our plastic, but they wanted the the contamination rate to be less than 0.5 percent. And I think what we were sending to them was about 30 percent. Yeah. So. And you can't blame them when there's that much contamination. You can't blame them for saying we don't want your trash. Um, so, um, so I, I think you know understanding what in you know with regard to plastic, you know it's it's a difficult material to recycle. So understanding that aspect too, um, and you know kind of being I guess more engaged in the whole process. But what I hope as a campus is to eventually make us a, a net zero campus mm-hmm. or a zero waste campus so that everything we make on campus is either composted or, or truly recycled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, you hit one of the, the points was this idea of single stream. People got enamored with it and frankly, they throw things in there. They shouldn't. And right. it's actually hard to blame the consumer because there's a lot of diff- different information out there. And I joke here in my house and say, you need a PhD in, in recycling sorting to understand and you know and on some containers you can't read the numbers it's not as well standardized as everyone would like it to be but if you can get really good plastic and separate it out it actually has a lot of value in the recycling stream and it can be used over and over again and that's what we want to to have happen uh, Absolutely. but yeah that's it's a difficult problem and you made me think of you you made me think of actually my alma mater i went to university of arizona you went to ut austin i went there for my graduate work but we had actually a very famous researcher there uh, who studied garbage dumps. He was a garbolic, self-described yes. garbolic. Uh, you probably know who it is, you know, who it is. And I remember that well in him. And this was back, you know, a number of years ago. I'll just say that. But we're leaving behind a legacy there. Good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, mostly bad, I think. But if you've never been to a landfill to see what happens, like you say, 
uh, it would surprise you. But he would find some interesting things like, you know, by drilling down and coring and finding, you know, all sorts of stuff. I won't go on and on, but uh, I always found that pretty fascinating. I want to switch now to microplastics. And I think the first time I met you, you told me you were the plastics lady. Uh, <laughs> self-described because of the work that you've done that's really important in identifying microplastics, particularly in our waterways, Great Lakes, and also the, you know, in our aquatic uh, ecosystem. So let's talk a bit about that. What are microplastics? How do they get there? So microplastics, by definition, is a piece of plastic that's smaller than five millimeters, which is about the size of your thumbnail, just to give people some perspective. Um, It's not micro-sized in the kind of standard definition of what micro means, um, unfortunately, but that is the it is the definition that is. So um, five millimeters or smaller, that's it's a long legacy as to why it became five millimeters. And we don't need to get into all of that. Where do they come from? Um, You have primary and secondary microplastics. So primary microplastics are things that are manufactured to be that size. Um, And so probably the most kind of, um, you know, kind of common thing that people think of are are microbeads. So these were little plastic beads that were put into personal care products, face wash, body washes, um, in order to act as abrasives. Um, They were... um, uh, Outlawed. They were regulated, right? Um, in in uh, 2015 was when it was signed into law, and it became um, a, a, a United States law in 2018. So um, you should not be seeing microplast microbeads in your your personal care products anymore. Um, another kind of example of this are the pre-production pellets, where the nurdles that um, um, how plastic is is shipped from. Um, its point of origin, a, a refinery, um, to its point of being turned into a, a consumer product like many of the facilities we have here and around Erie. Um, so that's another kind of place where you find something that's, that's manufactured to be, to be microplastics. Um, the other type is the more common and that's the secondary microplastics. So these form from larger plastic items that um, largely unintentionally end up released into the environment. Um, sun acts to make them more brittle, and then you have mechanical abrasion causing them to break into smaller and smaller pieces. But from a, a chemical standpoint, um, they're, they're, they're still plastic, right? So they just get smaller and smaller in terms of, of, um, being a, a particle. And so that's, so that's, yeah, those are the most common type of microplastics. And then, Fish and wildlife ingest them. Yeah, um, and it's you know it's a little bit of unintentional, right? You have a lot of filter feeding organisms that just kind of eat whatever, um, and but it's but a big portion of it seems to be um, intentional in that um, uh, plastics when they're in the environment will pick up biofilms. So little microorganisms will um, live on the surface of the plastic, making it um, appear to or um, to bigger organisms <laughs> to be food, um, you know, to smell like food and look like food. And so they they will ingest it. And the, the extent of the problem, it's significant. I mean, you've, test, you've tested here and in our area and I'm sure you've, you, you're, you're connecting to researchers all around the world. I mean, is it it's all bodies of water for the most part? How's the, how pervasive is it? 
it's it's everywhere. It's in our air. We're breathing microplastics. It's in our water. It's you know we've tested tap water. We've tested bottled water. We've tested beer. <laughs> we've tested mm-hmm. sea salt. You know, um, ocean water, fresh water. You know, there hasn't been. We've we've tested terribly remote lakes. Um, you know, an, um, Antarctic sea ice. Um, it all has microplastics in it. So it's it's a terribly pervasive problem. In fact, I was part of a United Nations working group and um, the one of the, the UN um, ambassadors came in and, and, you know, kind of welcomed everybody. Right. And he said that this problem is so pervasive that the United Nations ranks it second only to climate change in terms of its ability to impact the, our, the survival of our species on this planet. Wow. So how does this lead you to what, what sort of research can we do at Barron? I mean, that's the. So we've got this problem. We have a plastics program too. I mean, one yeah. of the well-known ones in the in the world. So what's the opportunity for us to address it? Well, it's multifaceted, right? I mean, we can go from the beginning of of the plastics life cycle and understanding, you know, kind of thinking about maybe new materials um, that that could be utilized. So bioplastics, for example, is is maybe a, a possible alternative. Um, we can be looking at um, the the mechanics of it um, and how you make plastics. Um, maybe we could, you know, one of the, the things with plastics is that there's so many of them that recycling it makes it terribly difficult, right? And that's why you hear that ones and twos are the best plastics because those are the most efficiently recycled. Well, is there a way to maybe um, uh, allow us to kind of change the properties of those um, efficiently recycled plastics so that we can use them in a wider range of opportunities so that we don't have this plethora of, you know, thousands of different plastics. If we could reduce the number of types of plastics, um, it would make it a lot easier to recycle them. Um, and then we can be doing, you know, kind of basic research on the other end and kind of the, the end of life um, and and where do they end up and how do they biodegrade and, you know, what are things that we can be doing um, on that side of, of the spectrum. So I think... You know, this really is an opportunity for for cross campus, um, interdisciplinary collaboration and a lot of opportunities for us to um, uh, to utilize this um, to educate um, as well as to, to make an impact on society. So, you know, I'll put a little plug in for Baron. So a student who's yeah. interested, though, they could come here and they could study chemistry, environmental science, the whole biology, and they could get involved with the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a new program, right, starting up. Am I allowed to talk about that? <laughs> uh, it's not official yet, but you can you can mention that it's on its way. We're well on our way. It will be uh, approved in another month. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, so we should be starting up soon a new polymer environmental science program that that does exactly this. It bridges the, the plastics engineering technology program with the environmental science component and helps to train, you know, people who are kind of more environmentally minded um, around this plastics issue. Yeah, we've just got this, you know, grand, it's, this is truly a grand challenge ahead of us. And, you know, plastics is a material and, you know, you look at it dispassionately. We won't, we need materials for our human function, right? And they, there's so many great things it does in the medical world, but now we're coming to grips with 30, 40 years of 
significant plastics consumption, and uh, it's not going away. It's how we're going to manage it and, and use less of it, but use it in a smarter way. And we're also seeing, you know, my background is engineering, not polymers, but uh, for quite some time we've just seen a much greater interest in the materials formulation and development. So all these pieces fit really well together. So, yeah, you can mention that. Uh, it's uh, got its last uh, hurdle for approval, which is the Board of Trustees meeting uh, this July, and it's on the uh, the docket for that. So we're, we're optimistic. Well, let's switch to the uh, the winner. You know, as you said early on, we've got all these beautiful uh, assets here on campus. Uh, the Wintergreen Gorge, uh, is really, is, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, we just, uh, we're just about completed with that project. So tell everybody what's going on. What's this Wintergreen Gorge project? And by the way, I don't even think a lot of people know that the Wintergreen Gorge is that, that's Penn State property, Penn but State they will not. I know it's such a beautiful area. People, I think, automatically assume that it's like a public park, but it's not. It's Penn State property. And, you know, I think it's, such a feather in our cap that we have this asset and we make it very available um, to the larger community to the extent that we've you know taken on this endeavor to to restore it um, and and protect it for for future generations. So it's it's incredible. Um, we so it you know it started I guess in 2013 I want to say with a, um, an assessment of you know. What is what's going on with the Wintergreen Gorge? What are its issues and how would we protect it? Um, and so we came up with the sustainability, um, you know, Wintergreen Gorge sustainability master plan. We have a lot of erosion issues happening within the gorge. Um, and this master plan was laid out to help kind of protect these natural wetlands to, to protect the area and make it accessible for people. Um, that master plan came out in 2015, and then we spent four years, three, four years as a campus, um, writing grants, pulling together resources from a number of different agencies, including the, the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, the Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development, the Erie County Planning Department, as well as our own campus resources, Penn State resources, um, to to start the, the implementation of this master plan. And so the, the project that we're finishing up right now is phase one of that master plan. Um, and it's really exciting. It's, it's amazing what has been, what has been done down there. Now I'm impressed. Uh, I walk the campus a lot and I walk through the gorge and particularly during this COVID crisis, I, what an asset for the community. The number of people who are down there in the gorge walking around campus, uh, it's just been wonderful to see. But as it turns out, I was down there the other day and I saw the sign up for the first time and unveiled. Uh, the, the, at the trailhead and it's beautiful. Uh, so my kudos to the whole team, but also the whole pathway there that you start and walk along the, the, the stream, uh, just changed the whole look of it as well, in my opinion. And it feels so much different than it did six months ago, a year ago. Absolutely. And it's all ADA accessible, which I think is so incredibly important. Um, my, I just moved my mother-in-law, um, up here to Erie, Pennsylvania and, um, you know, and, and she has trouble walking, you know, and if prior to these improvements, she wouldn't have been able to go out there and, um, just really excited to, to be able to take her out there and have her experience, um, that space. Um, you know, and I've, you know, I, I know people that have had similar experiences, so it's, it's great. Well, we are coming to the uh, end of our time. Is there anything you'd like to add? 
Oh, goodness, a million and a half things I want to add. <laughs> we didn't have enough time to talk about nearly enough stuff. But I'll, I'll just end with this, that, um, you know, with everything that's going on, um, the, the, the coronavirus and, and the kind of um, protests um, and, and um, things that are happening, I just really want to remind people that um, they should be the change they wish to see in the world. These are, are wonderful. It's my, my favorite quote that I live by from Gandhi. Um, and, you know, as we make changes and as we um, it, are the examples of, of what we want to see, it affects everything else that's around us. So really encourage people to do that. Well, that is great wisdom. That's a great way to end the show. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us. And uh, again, Dr. Sam Sherry Mason, <laughs> Sustainability Coordinator, Penn State Baron. Thanks for joining us today, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. Take care.